Welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015, and we have over a thousand years of living with T1D on the podcast. The interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories, and we celebrate them all just the same. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get involved even further, just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Diathrive, which I'm really excited to tell you about. And as anyone living with or taking care of someone with diabetes knows, the financial costs of treatment can be extremely high. Diathrive takes some of the guesswork out of that with hospital quality testing supplies and testers starting at just $8 per month. No prescriptions, no insurance, just FDA approved test strips delivered straight to your door. Pay as you go. And if you want to change your subscription, you can. Strips are delivered in just two to three business days from your first order. Replacements are available anytime, and Diathrive has real people working customer service to solve your problems on web, phone, or social media. So if uh, your tester breaks or you need more strips, you can reach out to them, and a real person will help solve your problem. Best of all, listeners of this podcast can get their first month free. Just use code DDT, that's D-D-T at checkout, and whatever subscription you choose, you'll get the first month free. So head to diathrive.com today and check it out. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We are telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics from all across the world. Uh, And my very special guest from just north of the border uh, up in Canada today, I think a lot of you are going to be really excited to hear her story, and uh, I'm really excited to have her on the podcast. Michelle Lord, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so great to have you. Um, It is an early Saturday morning, and uh, you know uh, we're going to talk about all the things that you've got going on at this part of your life, which is just, it's mind-blowing to to know how many things that you have on your plate right now. But I'm glad that we were able to make this work, and uh, and it, you know you've uh, got some time for us this morning. Up oh, there goes a blender uh, in in my home studio <laughs> in the kitchen. It looks like Erica, my girlfriend, is making some breakfast. <laughs> That's okay. No worries. Um. So, uh, Michelle, kind of give us a little bit of for for those people who may not be as familiar with your story, um, or or even for those who are, just give a little bit of background on um, you know, your background of, of who you are and uh, and how you joined this type one diabetes family. Okay. So my name's Michelle, and a lot of you might know me from my YouTube channel. It's just called Michelle Lord. My name. I started it about a year ago, maybe a bit over a year ago, and I wanted to start a YouTube channel for a really long time about type 1 diabetes, so it took me a while, but I'm super happy to be a part of the community, and I've just found the best support possible in this community. It's truly amazing, and yeah, I've had diabetes for 15 years, so it took me a while to to join the community and actually find other type 1 diabetic friends. Yeah, I think it's interesting um, because that's sort of part of my story as well. I didn't really actively go and try to make friends or get involved till about 10 years in. It kind of takes you a little while to find your footing, I think. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, everybody's different, too. It's interesting now going and meeting people face to face. You know, I meet 
type one caregivers and type ones who have been around for 50 years and also people who are just recently diagnosed. And I feel like kind of in that sweet spot, like 10 to 15 years is when you kind of start to really have confidence to go to events or kind of help people or point people in the right direction and get involved in the community. Absolutely. And it's kind of crazy that it takes that long to feel comfortable living with this disease. But it really does. Because like for the first 10 to 15 years, I didn't even want to talk about it. And I didn't tell anyone I had it. It was just kind of something that was really personal to me. But now that I've I've grown up and I've matured, I'm, I realize that it's a part of me and I want to share it. So it's interesting how it takes people so long to come to terms with that. It is. And I think, you know, everybody's journey is different. Uh, some people, you know, I'm sure you see this on social media. Um, some people get diagnosed and they jump right in. And that's part of, I think, their acceptance or part of their grief process is to yeah, immediately yeah. kind of jump in, tell the story and give back. Uh, and I worry about people sometimes because I think you you run the risk of taking too much on right away. Um, and I think when you get to that point where you're 8, 10, 15, 20 years in, you're comfortable managing yourself at that point. Um, and you can, you know, really focus on what, what, what I need, what, what I have, uh, I'm stuttering in my words. This morning. <laughs> what would have I needed to know when I got diagnosed? Right. Right. Uh, so how, how did you, you know, in those moments, and, and I want to go back and, and finish your sort of diagnosis story, but when you were uh, making your YouTube channel, what uh, where was your inspiration? What what did you say, you know, when, when you really sat down and put pen to paper, what was your uh, mindset kind of walk us through it? So in the beginning, like I've always liked creating videos. Ever since I was a kid, I like forced my cousins to make videos with me and they probably hate me for it, but that's what I did. <laughs> so when I started my YouTube channel, I loved watching YouTube and I loved watching vlogs and I thought, oh, it would be really cool to just watch like an everyday life of someone with type one diabetes, someone going through the same things as me and just kind of seeing how they live their life and how they deal with the daily struggles. So I originally was like, I'll do a vlog channel. So I kind of tried that out and my first few videos I deleted because they were really bad. And then I realized that I like to do more of a mix of like diabetes tips and tricks and vlogs so that other type 1 diabetics could watch my channel they could relate to my content and they could also find some support and comfort seeing that they're dealing with the same thing as me and also find some tips and tricks in there as well so I kind of made like a mixed channel to help other type ones that's awesome it's interesting how when you when you start something you know, and this is again a little bit more philosophical here, but a bigger a bigger concept. But you start something, you put pen to paper, you start working on it, uh, and then you find what the real purpose is. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I realized after I made like my, my first few videos, I was like, oh, this is why I want to do this. I really want to reach out to others. I really want to help others. And yeah, and then I I figured out my style, and I've been going with that for over a year now, and it's worked out really well. That's so great. I think. I think that's such a good lesson for people to learn. And I wish, I don't know how, I think I feel like a broken record sometimes repeating because I think people are too worried about um, if no one watches their videos or if no one listens to their new podcast or nobody reads their new blog right. before, before they even start. And, uh, you know, I think yours is a great example of like, you know, I, you deleted the old videos. No one even knows those will exist, but they gave you the... Uh, the insight to go find your real voice in your real place. So they were yep. worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you have to just kind of put yourself out there and see if anyone watches. I mean, like I also had that fear, oh, what if nobody watches my videos? But I mean, even if my videos reached a few people and helped a few people, that was good enough for me. Totally agree. And I think that's the mindset that I started this podcast with, that if maybe one person, uh, and at the beginning, you know, there was a real, uh, a real fear of like, oh, well, hopefully one person with diabetes will find this useful. <laughs> and, you know, but I decided that if one person was able to get something from it, then it would be worth it. So, yeah, absolutely. And you know, your your podcast has definitely reached more than one person. I can tell you that. <laughs> yes, uh, very. We're very lucky now, um, and you know, really just a testament to being stubborn and keeping on doing stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, I, I love that philosophy. I think uh, I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about your your everyday life and your PhD work as well uh, later on. But let's let's go back to 15 years ago uh, up in Canada. Things are a little bit different than in the U.S., and I've heard some really interesting diagnosis stories. Uh, but I also want to talk about the diagnosis experience and you know what your first few years were like, and then, then we'll kind of go through uh, the year 10, 12, 15, when you started to think, okay, when now we're going to give back. Okay. All right. So let's rewind to 2002. Um, so that's when I was diagnosed. I didn't have a very typical diagnosis like I never experienced those symptoms of thirst that people just have never had that so I have no idea what people talk about or what people mean when they talk about um, unquenchable thirst so my symptoms in August 2002 I had um, like an infection in my mouth it was like it's really gross but I had a fungal infection in my mouth in August and I was just like okay that's very weird and the doctors just kind of brushed it off and thought oh it's just something that kids get sometimes. And then in December, I felt like I needed to pee more, but then I but I wasn't drinking any more than normal. So I just kind of felt like I needed to pee more, but there was like nothing really coming out. This might be a bit too much information, but that's my other symptom. So my mom took me into the doctor's office for to check for a bladder infection. So they just I just gave a urine sample and they checked for bacteria. But then they also checked for sugar just because it was part of a routine test. And they came back into the office and they said, oh, you're having a bit of sugar in your urine. We're going to test your blood sugar. And my cousin has type 1 diabetes. So I knew what that meant. And I immediately started to like have a full like, panic attack at 12 years old because I thought I had type 1 diabetes. So they tested my blood sugar and it was only 10, which is 180 in milligrams per deciliter. So that's not that high. Um, so they were kind of confused and they didn't know if I had diabetes or not. And they sent me for more blood tests the next day. And yeah, I had type 1 diabetes. And they caught it extremely early. And I hardly required insulin for a year and a half. I had like a very slow onset, almost like what adults get. Um, it was really weird, but it was nice because I had a very long honeymoon at least. <laughs> right. I mean, you can never, you can never go back to those moments right so it's interesting being able to know what your blood sugar was i was a little bit similar i didn't have a super long diagnosis i did have the the thirst and the weight loss but it was probably the doctor said probably only a month or so and i know some people live for months years even and you know it's very touch touch and go for them at those times but that's funny almost right yeah, yeah, doctor, it was very like, strange from like the typical um, diagnosis stories I hear, especially when people are diagnosed as kids, because I've heard of adults being diagnosed and having a very um, long process of 
their beta cells being destroyed essentially. Um, but yeah, that happened to me too. So it was very, it was strange, but it was, it was a good way to get diagnosed, I guess, if there is such a way. Right. It's at least uh, manageable, a little bit less uh, intense. Yeah, absolutely. Like when you're making a bit of your own insulin, it makes it a bit easier to like ease into the disease. Yeah, a hundred percent. But I think too, you know, you've got to learn, uh, you know, just as much as everybody else. And sometimes a long honeymoon can make it a little more challenging. It's almost like if you weren't making insulin, you'd have at least, you know, you'd know what to what to give yourself all the time, and it changes. Absolutely, yeah. So I had to go into a lot of appointments, and every single time I went in, we would up my insulin because I was slowly making less and less. So it was like a year and a half of adjustments before I finally went on my normal dose. And do you remember what the message was from your doctors, you know, at that time, what your life was going to be like? What were the things that you were doing? Did you have to adjust any of those? Um, so I was 12, and honestly, it didn't hit me too hard, the diagnosis. Well, I was upset at first, obviously, but I kind of, my doctor was really encouraging, and she pretty much said, you can live a completely normal life, a complete, like, a full life with this disease if you manage yourself. Um, you can do anything you want, except she mentioned two things. She's like, you can't be a pilot and you can't scuba dive. Right. Those are the two restrictions she gave me. But otherwise, she said I could do anything I wanted. So she was really encouraging. I think that makes such a big difference. I hear so many stories of people whose doctors are either just maybe their bedside manner isn't the same or isn't what they needed or not as charismatic or not as knowledgeable about life with type 1. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that can really you know, break your relationship with diabetes or set you off on the wrong path right from the start, at least emotionally. Yeah, um, absolutely. I've heard of many people having horrible endocrinologists that pretty much just send them home with some syringes and insulin and say, here you go, like, good luck. One of the, one of the stories I like to tell was from an earlier, uh, one of the very first episodes of the podcast, and um, the girl was diagnosed, and she they gave her and her parents a... Uh, a Spanish DVD uh, of how to treat your diabetes, but they didn't speak Spanish, so I had to learn in Spanish how to speak how to uh, treat their her type one diabetes. Oh my gosh, that's awful! <laughs> I uh, can't imagine. So you know, it, it sort of runs a spectrum here in the U.S. So, you know, depending on where you are, location is a big part of that. Um, I was diagnosed at Children's Dallas, which is a big children's hospital, and it's got an awesome endocrine wing. But I didn't know that at the time. Um, it was just, you know, just part of, part of life. So, uh, until yeah. I started to get involved with the community and learn that there were people who were from small towns that their general practitioner diagnosed them and didn't know anything about type one diabetes and told them they were going to die when they were 30. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, it, it's just, you know, it makes you feel gratitude on some level, but also just like, how do we do better about education overall on practitioners? Yeah, yeah, that's awful. And I mean, like, I've met with a lot of GPs that also have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to type 1 diabetes. And even in the emergency room, like, the last time I went in, my doctor was just, like, completely out of it with respect to type 1. And it was the nurses that knew everything. So, yeah, there's definitely something wrong there. Do you, uh, if you meet a doctor and a... In, and this is like, you know, maybe not the right context, but you say, hey, I've got a YouTube channel that could like really help you get up to speed on all the latest and greatest stuff. I've never done that before. I don't know if I feel comfortable telling that to a doctor, but <laughs> it might be insulting. 
but I mean, I should, <laughs> if someone really doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously you never, you never know. I think it's always interesting when, uh, you know, there's a group of like power advocates, right. And people who are so involved in day-to-day -day life with type one, Yeah. you know, and I wish, I wish that there was a way that, you know, when a doctor or, or a GP or whoever met them, that they'd know like, oh, yeah, this person thinks about this all the time and is familiar with all of these different, uh, you know, ways of, of treatment. So just, you know, come with that in mind or whatever the case is. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So for you, you know, now, fast forward 15 years, um, you know, a lot's happened then. Did you have any you know, times when you were planning or living your life, maybe going to college, starting a starting a job, you know, you're obviously, you know, working on your PhD, where mm -hmm. your type one was at least, you know, there, there was either a challenge that you had to overcome, or uh, maybe not ideal circumstances that stand out? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I haven't had a job yet, because I've been in university for nine years. So hopefully soon. But when I was thinking about doing my PhD, my type 1 diabetes actually really did stand in the way. And it wasn't a matter of like, can I manage this while I'm doing a PhD? It was actually financial because I'd been in school for so long and like I didn't have coverage through my parents. Um, and I had a little bit of coverage through school. Like they provided some insurance. It just really wasn't good. Like they didn't cover any CGMs and like just very minimal coverage. Right. So I said to my, my supervisors who are going to supervise me for my PhD, I said, look, like I have type one diabetes and it's so expensive. Like, I don't know how I'm going to afford this as a PhD student. Cause you get paid like hardly anything. And they were like really not happy to hear that because they said that I had potential to do a PhD and that shouldn't hold me back. So they were really encouraging and I'm so glad that I talked with them because they really encouraged me to apply for scholarships, which I did and I put in a lot of effort and I ended up getting a couple scholarships and doing my PhD. So, I mean, I'm so lucky I had such supportive supervisors because otherwise I feel like I maybe wouldn't have done it. And that's interesting because they're not type one, right? They just saw the challenge and were like, you know, this shouldn't be a reason that you hold yourself back or that you, you know, don't go chase the dream. Yeah. Well, what my one supervisor, his daughter is a bit older than me and she's doing her PhD and she lives with a chronic illness as well. Not type one diabetes, but something else. And he gave her as an example. He said, look, I have my daughter. She struggles so much, but she's in her PhD. She's thriving. She loves it. I don't want to see you not do that because of a disease that you have. God, that's, uh, you know, that's strong, right? That, that message right there in itself, boil that down. You know, there shouldn't be anything that you let hold you back. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it's not easy doing a PhD with type one diabetes. I mean, I don't want to say like, Oh, you can do anything with type one diabetes Like you can, but it does. You still have limitations. Unfortunately, that's, that's just the way it is. And I mean, I've been slowed down a bit because of it, but I just accept that and I keep going as best as I can. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, my, the, the headline that was given to me when I was diagnosed was you can do anything as long as you take care of your type one. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, a lot to unpack from taking care of it. And sometimes it means slowing down, going a different pace, uh, having a different plan than somebody without it because you know ultimately 
it adds an extra step to everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like I just go to slower pace and I'm fine with that and it's working out well. So as long as I get my PhD in the end and I'm happy, that's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a place where, you, you know, getting to that place of maturity and acceptance with your type one, I mean, it takes a lot of work to get there. It's not something that just happens overnight. Definitely not. No, <laughs> it uh, takes it takes like 15 years, apparently, for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in that time, uh, obviously, you know, you mentioned CGM a little bit earlier, uh, you know, since 2002, I think, you know, we're living in, the, in this amazing time where we have technology on the diabetes management side where we have pumps and we have CGMs and we have glucometers that are, you know, improving every single year. Uh, but we also have this kind of social media aspect that has connected everybody where we ha we're really living in this like type one diabetes renaissance where all of a sudden people are open about their chronic illnesses and they're helping other people and people are following and getting around and you're a big part of that. Um, do you, you know, what technology or and and how has social media helped you and made a, made an impact for you in the last few years? Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by my friends at Diathrive. They're making test strips convenient, accurate, transparent, and affordable with prescription-free, insurance-free subscriptions. Use code DDT at checkout to get your first month free at diathrive.com. Well, yeah, like I said earlier in the interview, I, I, I've never really had a connection with other type 1s, well, except for my cousin, but we didn't really talk too much about it. Um, so, yeah, it's really connected me with people all over the world, which is something I never thought would happen. When I first went on Instagram in 2013, that's when I got my account, I was just shocked as to how many type 1 accounts there were. I had no idea. And now I would say there are thousands and thousands of accounts. Like It's incredible how many new accounts there are every day from type 1 diabetics. And I think truly the, the best support you can find is from other type 1s. And it's amazing that you can just go on your phone and you have thousands of type 1s at your fingertips. And then there's apps like the Beyond Type 1 community app, which is also amazing and such a good support. It's just been incredible to see people form friendships. Like I know you are, are really close with a lot of people from all over the U.S. and you guys get together and you hang out. And it's, it's just so cool to see that everyone has, has made that connection with each other over Instagram. It is. Like hashtag diabetes has done so, so much for so many people. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. It is. And I think, you know, to have people, you know, for me, I was around and, and always in like bigger cities. So there were, if I really looked, there was pockets of diabetes community around me. But for people who live, you know, in remote areas, in small towns, uh, in countries where they don't really have uh, as much going on in the community or as many resources as we have here in the U.S., you know, for them to be able to connect with people uh, all the way across the world that know exactly what they're going through, that's such a cool thing. And I think it's a story that doesn't get told outside of the T1D community as much, but uh, we're working on that. And I think, uh, you know, having channels like yours, you know, podcasts, I, I love when new accounts sprout up because, you know, we need more people so that whenever another person is diagnosed, they can go and look and say, hey, I'm like this person, I want to follow them. Yeah, absolutely. I get so excited when I see people start a YouTube channel that are type 1 diabetics because when I started, there weren't too many of us. And now I've noticed like more and more people are kind of going into the YouTube realm, which is really nice to see because at, at 
one point I thought it was just Instagram. So it's nice to see people kind of like spreading out. And I feel like YouTube does reach a few, like few more people than Instagram does just because it's a search engine. So those that aren't on Instagram might search into Google like, oh, how to insert a Dexcom G5 and then YouTube videos are going to pop up. So it just, it, I feel like it has a bigger reach to it. I think so too. And I, and I think I do want to, I have this on my list of uh, things to make sure that I do on this podcast is to thank you for your support of my 30 day over the counter challenge uh, earlier this year. Uh, because oh. you know you commenting and watching videos and just in and sharing and being involved in uh, in that process was super encouraging for me uh, and also just great to have those conversations because YouTube is different like it's uh, its shelf life is so much longer uh, like you said it's a search engine people are looking for information and yes. you know and when they can get those questions answered you know that's you know that's so big for them and, and some of your videos like you said are just simple quick how to's uh of how to get started or how to solve a problem or how to install a piece of technology yeah yeah absolutely i had such a big reach and and i loved your 30-day challenge that was really really cool to see although i feel bad because like it was really tough on you but it was it was a learning experience for so many people and like i said i love when people put themselves on youtube because it has a bigger reach so i feel like it would be nice if we have more and more of us join on YouTube and kind of start the YouTube type one diabetes community as well. Totally agree. Yeah, I think um, I have another couple YouTube projects in the works uh, for the rest of this year as well. As soon as I get a minute or get organized, which is my uh, biggest problem sometimes with my diabetes <laughs> stuff. Um, awesome. But yeah, because I think YouTube, obviously, whenever you look at the greater scheme of things, like you said, worldwide is bigger. It's just uh, it's just a different platform that people use to get information. And the yeah. more good diabetes information that's on there, the better off we'll be. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a very different place, YouTube. Whenever people contact me asking me about starting a channel, I'm very encouraging, but I do warn them. It's a different world out there on YouTube. You get like some very interesting comments. Like once you hit past, I think like 1,000, 2,000 subscribers, you get more people watching and you're going to get the negativity and you're going to get the judgment and it's just all part of YouTube but in the end it's worth it and i feel like you just kind of get used to those comments and all the negative comments that come along with having a YouTube channel yeah i think you know people are just are more used to negativity on YouTube maybe maybe that's like that's their sole existence there similar yeah. with like reddit <laughs> you're just going to get more like more thumbs down and and like uh, down votes of comments. It's just like, I think having the option to dislike something just gives people more confidence. I don't know. Oh yeah. And it's, it's more anonymous. So Instagram, you don't get the hate. You don't get all that. Well, usually you don't because it's more open and people kind of see who you are. YouTube is so anonymous. You have no idea who these people are. They're so, I don't know, they're like incognito. So they say whatever they want. And I find the worst judgment on YouTube is actually from other type ones. It's very interesting. Um, but type ones really judge each other, unfortunately. And that's totally not my motto. I always say on my channel, like we should be supporting each other and like we're all in this together. So let's, let's lift each other up instead of bringing each other down by judging if we're on a pump or not, or if we're on a certain CGM or if we're on a certain diet, because I mean, I get those comments all the time on YouTube, like, how can you eat carbs? You're, you're killing yourself. And 
I don't know. Everyone has their own thing. And I really try to mention that in all my videos. Like, let's not judge each other. We all do our own thing. Let's do what works for us. And you do you, then we'll be good. Right. But and, yeah, and <laughs> that's, that's another element of YouTube, a more negative side. But overall, I would say it's a very positive and awesome experience. Um, what was the biggest challenge for you when, you know, you reached that point where now people who are being negative are starting to reach out or are giving you feedback or whatever the case is, or was there one, one instance that really stood out maybe that upset you or that just kind of, um, informed how you respond to negativity going forward? Anything that stands out? Yeah. So when I posted, I posted um, a video in the fall about the Libre versus the Dexcom because I wore both devices for like a week and I compared them and at the end I gave my own personal opinion I said I prefer the Libre for right now because of this and this and this but then at the end I said of course if you need alarms Dexcom is your your obvious choice and I, I tried to make it not biased but I got a lot of hate on that video because I personally decided to use the Libre most of the time and just like really harsh messages from people and comments and I learned that the best way to respond to hate on YouTube is just kill them with kindness, right? Like respond in the, the most kind way possible and be like, oh, thank you so much for your opinion. Like, you know, I didn't mean this, but I really appreciate it. And just responding so that you show that you appreciate their input and kind of like giving your reasoning for things, but not being, I don't know, defensive. Being defensive is the worst. That's the worst way to deal with hate. So I learned a lot from that that video. And now I find whenever I get a negative comment on YouTube, I try to be like as kind as possible to these people just to kind of show them that like I'm not trying to attack them or anything and that like I value their opinion. That's just a great rule, I think, in life. <laughs> what a great uh, perspective to have uh, because people are going to do – uh, what they're going to do. It's, it, it's hard to stop them from, you know, from those types of reactions, but the way you respond is what you're in control of. Uh, and that's really great. It's a really awesome way to look at those things. Yeah. And that way, like it doesn't spark an argument too, right? Like if you respond in an aggressive way, it's just, it's not going to go well. Like they're going to keep responding because these people are in it to win it. Like the YouTube commenters are, are pretty harsh. So uh, it's just best to kind of end it as it is and be like, okay, thanks for your opinion. I appreciate it. And then that's it. Uh, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but um, the first YouTube video I ever uploaded on my personal channel, I think I put up on, in like 2006. And it was just because YouTube had become able, I, I was now able to upload videos and I wanted to do that. And I was in high school. And yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. Like, we're, we're talking 12 years now. It's still, still up, this video. So there's Is this, it? There's a scene from The Office, um, and it's on my personal channel, which I will not plug because it's just full of old videos like this. But, I really uh, want to find it now. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the video is basically me singing a song that was on The Office. And like I, think, I think it was like season three of The Office. It gives you any idea how long ago this was. Um, and. <laughs> okay. I, I was doing it badly and I wasn't really trying and the audio was a little bit off and we had to line it up on, when we uploaded it because this was, you know, the stone age of video uploads. Um, so anyway, I left it up and I had like, it like the name of the video is Song from the Office. And so people got on it and like it for some reason got a bunch of views because I think it was like the next day after the episode aired, we, we uploaded it. So okay. it was indexed as like the first video online about that. 
Oh my gosh. So it has like, I think 10,000 views now probably over the years. And everyone commenting is like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Why is this ranked so high? And uh, it's great. It's just a lot of really hilarious. Anytime I need to like check my ego, I always go read the comments in that video. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. They're harsh, right? They are. They are. And like poignant too. It's like, oh, that's true. And that hurts. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Now I'm gonna search for this video. Yeah, I, hope you I think I'll I'll just send you a link to it to keep you from having to find it. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about T1D life in Canada. Um, I know you're you're in the big city, right? So yes. E- but even there, uh, you guys are missing a little bit of the community aspect that we are starting to, I think, get more across the board here in the U.S. Absolutely. We are really lacking in that. And we have major FOMO up here. Um, Whenever we see you guys doing stuff, we're like, oh, man, like, how come we don't have any of this? But I feel like there's a few of us here in Toronto that are starting to see like, you know what, we can do this ourselves. We're actually hosting our first T1D brunch next weekend, which I'm so excited for. It's like the first meetup in Toronto that we're doing. So we are finally doing something up here. But I feel like there's a real lack of interest in social media, like meetups and all that with our charities up here. Like JDRF in Canada is very different from JDRF in the United States. Up here, it's very like classic JDRF, the walk. And then we have like a bowling night or something once a year. (laughs) And that's it. That's all we do. So, I mean, we don't have those meetups you guys have. They have nights where you can go and you can meet other type ones, but all you do is you go into a room and you sit in a circle and it's a bunch of people like complaining about living with diabetes, or at least that's what I found it was. It wasn't like a a happy event where you connect with people. So we're, we're really trying to like change that up here at least. And I know, um, you've talked with Abby, David, so I'm, I'm pretty good friends with her and we're like thinking of starting more regular meetups in the future. And then there's someone up here that is going to be doing um, a photography exhibit and she wants to kind of start a social media thing with JDRF and she's been kind of putting that in the works. Is that Raquel? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I know her too. Yeah, so there's a few people up here who are wanting change and wanting to do something and actually doing something. So I think we're going to see a bit of a change here in Toronto at least. Um, I don't know about the rest of Canada, but I'm hoping like JDRF is going to see kind of what's going on in the States, or I'm hoping that they see what's going on and make some change and get some more events going on up here. Yeah, I think all it takes is a few of you, and I think the three of you guys um, that you just mentioned, you three ladies, I think would you know if you guys just did a meetup and each of you brought one person that would be as many meetups uh, in as many people as we have at a lot of the meetups around here sometimes right yeah. it always looks like a bigger deal than i think it actually is we got a lot of uh when eric dowds came here from the Di- i am diabetes came to, to texas for the last few weeks we've had a bunch of meetups with him and trying to go do activities and we were going to go skydiving but it was too windy i saw uh, that it's too bad it, it was a super bummer but um we still just we had dinner we went and hung out we had you know we had happy hour we were at different events and it was just like you know we're just hanging out it's like friends it was it was a great thing yeah exactly i like that i like that you just hang out your friends you can talk about diabetes but you can also talk about other stuff 
Because at these support groups that I was mentioning with JDRF, you go into a room, sit in a circle, and you complain and like just talk about diabetes the whole time. And it's nice to, to have a type 1 diabetic friend, but also have another element to the friendship besides type 1 diabetes. I mean, obviously, that's the biggest thing that you share in common. But like I found with Abby, we met up initially because of our type 1 diabetes, but we have so much in common. I feel like our personalities are just so compatible. And I've made such a wonderful friendship through that. Yeah, and I think it's not the diabetes that brings you together, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you, it's the person, right? You meet the person, and you're like, wow, like this person is dealing with the same things that I am. They really know me, and they don't have to ask about these things because they already know what's going on. Um, yeah. I think that type of connection and, and type of friendship, I underestimated how much I needed in my life early on. And, you know, now I get to have it. I get to have... 8 a.m. phone conversations with people in Canada uh, on, on Saturday with uh, in they can relate to me in ways that other people can't and so even people that I've known for a long time and are my really close friends like they'll never understand what I go through from a diabetes perspective uh, but it's yeah. a lot easier for people with diabetes who already understand that to, to talk to me about easy stuff in life right and uh, and all the things that we like yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I, I have had the same thing as you. I didn't realize how much I needed it until I had it. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, how have I gone so long without having a type 1 diabetic friend? Well, and I think, you know, I underestimated how much it would improve my, my life. Do you, do you have any you know, specific examples, maybe even, you know, just with Abby or Raquel or whoever up in Canada? What's, what's an example of how being more outspoken with your diabetes has improved your life? Like outspoken, like you mean yeah, in terms or, of like with a friend? Yeah, in terms of just being involved in the community with the YouTube channel, with Instagram, um, maybe just one impactful moment that stands out. Um, okay, so for the YouTube channel, I guess I'm just really surprised with how many people I have reached. Like I've made friendships, not well through not through YouTube, but Instagram. But YouTube, I, I've reached a lot of people kind of all over the world, and it's been so rewarding to get messages from people who say, I just got diagnosed, I've been in complete panic, and I watched your video, and that's the only thing that's made me feel better. Or or someone messaged me the other day and said, my six-year-old daughter watches your video, your videos every night before she goes to bed. And just hearing stuff like that, that my videos are actually making a difference and reaching out to people is like, this means the world to me. So I think that's like the most impactful thing that's happened through the diabetes community for me. Yeah, I mean, just hearing that, right? Just, um, you know, I don't know how to explain it, right? It's just like, hey, this means so much to me, and, it, and it's true. You can't put a price on that, right? You can't, Absolutely. You can't, all that effort and work that you put into those, uh, to those videos, to, you know, thinking and, and all of the time that you don't have that you put into it, uh, when it's it makes it worth it, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's 100% worth it when you hear like that you're actually making a difference in someone's life and you're you're helping them cope with something they've just been diagnosed with. I mean, it's it's amazing and it's it's just such a great feeling to know that you we have the ability to reach out to people now in this day and age. Uh, we really do and we it's a lot easier than uh, than you think, right? It's it's just a quick outreach and you can touch people's lives and they can, you know, just meeting them at the right time and having that um, the answer to a question can really make a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. It is a lot easier. Like 
to start an Instagram account or a YouTube channel. I encourage anyone who's listening to this to start a YouTube channel. It's so easy. And even just a video of you talking about your struggles with diabetes, someone else can relate to that. And that might help them out, might help them through a tough day. So, I mean, it's super easy to do. Definitely. Maybe we, uh, I'm not sure if you've done this on a video or not, but uh, I'm sure you get questions a lot about, uh, you know, how to get started with a YouTube channel around diabetes. Uh, maybe that's a good video idea. Who, who knows? Just put, yeah, now, uh, actually, now... yeah, I've never thought about doing that. That That is a good idea, just kind of how to start up a channel. Yeah. Yeah, people ask me all the time about podcasts. Uh, my default answer is just do it. And, you know, if you and commit to doing five episodes and just assume right off the bat that no one's going to listen to it, don't get caught up with numbers, just do yeah. it. And if you like it, keep going. I totally agree with that. And I've had a few people message me on Instagram saying, like, I really want to start a YouTube channel. Like, what do I do? Like, should I do it? And I always say 100% yes, you should do it. It's so rewarding. And I always, like, kind of give them some tips. I'll be like, oh, I use this editing software. I use this for my thumbnails. Kind of just starting them off with everything but but yeah I really really encourage people to try it out and same with podcasts too I mean like it can reach so many people it can yeah and you never know um you know people like consuming things different ways uh, there's people that like podcasts there's people that love YouTube videos there's people that read blogs whatever your thing is I would encourage anybody listening who wants to get involved or wants to know how to start uh, the obstacle is the way. Get started, and you'll figure out what to do along the way. Yeah, it's it's a learning experience. I mean, you're never going to start off with like the perfect pod podcast or the perfect video. You have to learn how to do it, and unfortunately, you make mistakes along the way, but you learn from them, and your content becomes better and better. Yeah, I I refuse to go back and listen to like my first five episodes because I know how terrible I am on it. So. <laughs> Uh, it's just like you said, you deleted your first YouTube video. I keep the podcast there because their episode one is super important, but yeah. um, don't make me go back and listen to myself. <laughs> I'm sure it was fine. My my first video was like kind of cringeworthy. It was a vlog and it was just like, I didn't know how to hold a camera. It was shaky and like there was so much wind. It was just bad. So I'm glad I deleted that one. <laughs> but now you don't have those problems, and and you because you learned along the way. See, that's uh, exactly yeah part of the journey. Yeah, yeah, and I've also like contacted other type one YouTubers for some tips along the way. Like I've learned from other people as well, and I find um, the the type ones that are on YouTube are extremely supportive of each other. We're all like really um, well in contact, and we help each other out. And we give each other tips. I mean, there's no competition at all on YouTube. We're all excited to have new one, new channels starting. And that's an, that's another thing I think that's interesting. And we kind of live in this world where like of competition, where everybody wants to, you know, you have a scoreboard, right? You have followers, or you have views, or subscribers, or whatever the case is. Yeah. Um, and we all, I think, are really critical of ourselves at first, and we want, um, you know, want what somebody else has, or whatever the case is. But I think. That's why when we were talking earlier about if we can just help one person, if just one person hears this, it's worth it. And I think that's where, you know, it's a good way to let yourself off the hook of chasing that competitive angle, right? There's so many people who use YouTube. There's so many people who use Instagram. There's so many people around the world with type 1 diabetes. And they all like different things, and they're all different people. So I think yeah. having the option, for me, like, like you said earlier, every time I see a new Instagram or a new YouTube account pop up, I'm encouraged because I know that there's somebody out there that will relate to that person 
and they didn't have a place to turn before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you should see it as a good thing rather than a competition. Um, and like, I know some people are really into followers. And like, I have to admit, I was kind of like, with YouTube at first, I was like, Oh, I have another subscriber, I have another subscriber. But I mean, you can't start off anything just because you want popularity, you should be doing doing it because you love it. And then if that comes, if subscribers come along with it, then good. But if you're starting a channel or an Instagram account or a podcast just for viewers and just for numbers, then you're not starting it for the right reason. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Keep the keep the reason, uh, and, and you're gonna have to know what the reason is because there's gonna be a day where it might start out being fun, but it's gonna become work really quick. So you got to have that real true reason. It always. Oh, helps. definitely. Um. Yeah. I want to talk about, uh, you know, a little bit away from social media and YouTube uh, to two really important things that are going on in your life right now that are probably taking up a lot of time and energy. Uh, yes. <laughs> one, you mentioned already your PhD program, uh, and the other, you're getting married soon, so you're planning a wedding. Um, yeah. How, how do you do it? How do you keep, uh, <laughs> how, how do you manage all this stuff? I know I've had a lot of people message me being like, how do you do a YouTube channel when you're doing a PhD and getting married? Um, I kind of just like, film whenever I have time really but um yeah it's it's challenging so I right now we're doing like a lot of planning stuff and we're kind of coming near the tail end of planning but I mean my days are packed that's pretty much it like I go to school and I work and then at night I'll either do YouTube stuff or wedding planning stuff and it's hectic and it's busy but it's fun and as long as I'm enjoying it that's all that matters but yeah the PhD is definitely busy and I'm trying to finish it up in the next year too so I'm like getting married and finishing a PhD in the next year and it's it's a lot but I'm doing it <laughs> it is that, but that's good you know and that's a that's a good way to live life like sometimes things are going to be overwhelming they're going to be uh tough they're going to be hard to deal with you just got to do it yeah exactly and I mean yeah, I'm living with type one diabetes. I'm I'm managing that, and I'm doing this, and like, it it is a it's a struggle, but I mean, it's doable. Like like we said at the beginning, you can do anything with type one diabetes. It's just at a different pace sometimes. Well, and I want to talk a little bit about that. And I rarely steamroll interviews and and put a put my own thoughts in in the episodes. But living with type one diabetes is not easy. It, no. It's also <laughs> Like, a, like running a marathon, you might have 10 miles where you're just crushing it and killing it. Uh, and then you might, you know, get a rock in your shoe or something and you have to stop and take the rock out or whatever the case is. That's a bad marathon example. I've never run a marathon. But, <laughs> but you know, people people get really critical of themselves and they think that just because they're having a bad week or a bad, you know, stretch of time or can't, you know, are having a difficulty getting their numbers under control or adjusting to a new job or whatever the case is, it's okay. You're going to have those rough times. This is not an easy thing to manage. No, not at all. Yeah. Everyone needs to know that they're like at some point in your life, it's impossible to like go through your life with type one diabetes and not have any roadblocks. It just happens. Like, like for example, like the beginning of the year, I was in DKA. I've never been in DKA before, like out of 15 years of having type 1 diabetes, and it happened, and it set me back. I was off school for like a week because I just wasn't feeling well after, and that was a roadblock. Didn't ever expect that to happen, but there it was. It came up, and 
I just kind of dealt with it. And I was like, you know what, this is part of life. This is part of the disease that I have. I'm going to take a week off to myself, get better, and then I'll get back into the PhD. And people will understand because everyone at my school and my supervisors, they understand that I deal with a chronic illness. So, I mean, it's not a big deal. I have one question that, uh, that I ask on every episode. Uh, actually, okay. I think I may have missed one along the way, but I'm not going to go back and figure out which one I missed it on. Um, and context is important. So I'm really interested to hear your perspective on it. Uh, the scenario is you're in the airport and, uh, they're about to close the door to your gate. So you've got to get on the flight. Whatever's on the other end of this flight is super important. You can't miss it. Uh, but you run into somebody who's either been recently diagnosed or is struggling with their, their type one. Uh, maybe they recognize you. Maybe they just, maybe it just comes up in conversation. Maybe you recognize them. Um, what's the one thing that you tell them in the 30 seconds before they close your gate? Oh my gosh. I would say, I would say get involved in the community, find a friend. (laughs) That would be my best advice because the support is so important to have. I'd say like get on Instagram, get on the beyond Taiwan app, get out there and find someone to talk to. That would be my only advice. I wouldn't want to miss that plane. So, I mean, it would have to be quick advice, right? Right. <laughs> uh, some people do just say blatantly they're going to miss the flight. They just reject my rules. But I appreciate you doing <laughs> the, uh, giving a great answer, which is very similar to my own. Because you know, I, don't, I didn't realize how much better my life with diabetes would get uh, once I had the community aspect. Once I added people who I knew who also dealt with the things that I deal with and would be there to give me a... Uh, pat on the back or celebrate a win or, you know, be there when I needed them. So totally yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Good. I'm glad we're on the same page and I'm glad that you wouldn't miss the flight. Cause I mean, what a waste of money. Yeah, exactly. You know, and just hassling to try to like get on another one afterwards, would be the, you know, the worst thing. Yeah. No, not for me. Um, Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you making time out of your crazy busy schedule and just an awesome interview. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun talking with you. And I really appreciate all that you do for the diabetic community. So thank you. Uh, Well, I appreciate it. And it's uh, one of my favorite things and I'm going to keep doing it. So that's, you know, when we talked about sometimes it becomes work, it's work that I enjoy and, um, you know, getting to interact and hang out with the, the T1D community is my favorite, favorite thing. Yeah. I love it too. It's so awesome. Um, I'm sure everybody knows how to get in touch with you if they need to find you online, but uh, let's plug your Instagram and YouTube channels here and um, so that we can include them in the show notes. Sure. So my YouTube is just my name, Michelle Lord. So if you just type in Michelle Lord Diabetes, it will come up right away. And then my Instagram is Mish, so M-I-C-H-E underscore low, L-O. And that's it. <laughs> Well, we will include those links in the show notes and then tag you, obviously, in social media when we launch this episode. Uh, You did remind me I've got to get Abby's episode published. So, Abby, um, you know, I'm going to get hers published before yours just so that uh, she doesn't feel any FOMO from us talking about her. (laughs) Oh, okay, That's a good idea. (laughs) Great. Well, um, I appreciate you coming on again. And thanks so much for all you do. And, uh, you know, your voice in the T1D community is super unique and special. And, uh, you know, I appreciate it and grateful for the time. Oh, thank you so much.